Well, uh, once again, and for the last time, uh, we need to be reminded that Peter is writing to believers who are being persecuted by people who are, if you will, unfriendly to the gospel. And because of that, Peter, throughout this letter, he's been encouraging believers concerning their enduring in the faith when they're suffering. Peter has said that believers are to endure suffering by being steadfast in their faith in the all-wise providence of God. One of Peter's most important points to the believer has been that God's keeping of the believer is done through their personal faith and not apart from that. Peter refuses to let the believer's faith grow weak as a result of a lack of encouragement. And that ought to be something that causes us to stop and think. Believers grow weary in the faith when there's a lack of encouragement. And that's what we as the church do for one another, right? As brothers and sisters, we encourage one another in the faith. When they're going through difficult times, when their faith is wavering. One of the hardest and most crucial lessons to learn as a Christian is to how to handle suffering. Would that be true in our Christian lives? One of the hardest things for us is dealing with suffering. And Now, although Peter is dealing with suffering that comes because of people's faith in Jesus, that's the main thing that's going on here. He's wanting to encourage them. Uh, all of the principles that Peter is giving can be applied to all areas of suffering. It's not limited just suffering for our faith, but we can apply these to all areas of suffering. In a fallen world... I'm not going to tell you something you don't know. Suffering is a certainty, right? It's going to come. Um, it may be physical suffering that goes with living in these weak, frail bodies that get sick and die. It may be the grief of watching a loved one suffer and die. It may be the doctor coming into the room and telling you that you have cancer. It may be problems that are a result of your own sin or from others sinning against you. It may be the common pressures of life. We all experience those, right? Providing a living and wondering, how in the world are we going to get this done? It may be the emotional suffering of struggling with feelings of being inadequate. Moms and dads are some days you're wondering, what in the world? How, how am I... God calls me to be this to my children. And it's a struggle some days to, to feel adequacy in doing that. We struggle with loneliness, anger, worry, fear. But wherever it comes from, suffering is to be expected. It's going to come as a Christian. We can't avoid that. I ran across this quote this week as I was preparing and studying. It comes from John Piper. I'll say it slowly. This is a good thing for you to write down and look back upon. Life is hard. God is good. Glory is coming. Therefore, stand firm in His grace. Life is hard. God is good. Glory is coming. Therefore, stand firm in His grace. That's exactly what Peter has been saying to us through the book of 1 Peter. And today, we'll see him in this letter in the exact same way. So if you're looking at your handout, you see there the main idea is this. When suffering, remain firm in your faith because glory... It's coming later. God, keep, Do you believe God keeps His promises? Absolutely. If God says glory is coming, we can mark it down. It will come. So if you look in your handout, verses 5-7, through seven, humble yourself before God. He says, Likewise, you who are younger, 
Be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. And here's why. For God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. You notice he begins there, likewise, uh, Peter's indicating he's moving the attention to a different group of people, but there's the same instruction that's going on here. In verses 1-4, through we looked at last week, Peter dealt with the relationship between uh, the leaders in the church, the pastors, and the congregation. Here in verse 5, Peter deals with the relationship uh, of younger people to the pastors and all members toward one another. Peter tells the the, the younger people within the church to be subject to their elders. And here, uh, I explained last week that word elders refers to who church? It's talking about the pastors. And it's used the same way here as it was used in verse 4. Elder simply means the office, the position of pastor. So, you know, as you're looking at this, you'd think, why would Peter warn younger people to be subject or to be submissive um, to their pastors, to their leaders? Um, I'll kind of take a stab at this because at one time in my own experience, I was young at one time. Um... I say this from my own experience. Sometimes, you did hear me say that, right? I'm saying this from my own experience. Um, young people may tend to be more self-sufficient and less inclined to submit to authority. I thought my daddy was the dumbest guy in the world. He didn't know what he was talking about. But when I got 30, I realized. They might be reluctant to follow the leadership of the church and its leaders. So Peter commands them to submit to them. He says, be subject. It means to, to follow the, the, the leader's direction and the leadership of the church unless they lead you away from the Word of God. That's what he's saying. And the principle here is that churches show they trust God by following their leaders. They trust God by following the leaders He's given them. And so, young people, I'm going to give you a break. That's all I'm going to say about submitting from the perspective of a young person. We'll move on in verse 5. He says, clothe yourselves. Notice what he says. All of you with humility toward one another. Peter tells the whole church a remedy for getting along with each other. The word clothe here has the idea of a servant putting on an apron before carrying out a task. Ladies, y'all still let put an apron on? Right? You do that for a purpose, right? It's to keep your clothes from getting grease splattered all over it. But when you're putting that apron on, there's something that's going to happen as the end result of you putting an apron on, right? Someone's going to get served by you. So that's what this word clothe means. It has the idea of putting on an apron before doing a task. In the same way, Peter says, put on attitudes of humility toward one another. You're going to serve somebody by being humble toward them. So what does humility look like? That'd be a good question to ask, would it not? Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 4. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. It doesn't say disregard yourself. It says let each of you look not only to himself, but also to the interests of others. Notice here that Peter gives the reason for humility. It's because God does what? He opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. The reason to be humble is because God hates pride and He values humility. Who's our prime example of that? Philippians chapter 2, the Lord Jesus Christ. So here's the application. 
Let's make it a point that we, as the people of God, in this particular place that God's put us, we're people who always seek to have this way of thinking about us as a church. We should seek to honor God as being a church where people regard each other as better than themselves, and we live with humility. You know, pride, pride's to blame a lot of times when disputes and things arise within the church. So let's pray that God would remove pride from us and each of our lives so that by His grace we, we might be that kind of church that's described in Philippians chapter 2. Verse 5, dealt with the humility that Christians should demonstrate toward one another and one another in the church. Now, Peter is commanding humility not towards men, but he's commanding humility towards God. Notice what he says. Humble yourselves, therefore, based on what Peter's just said, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. Notice what he says. Humble yourselves where? Under the what hand of God? The mighty hand of God. It tells us that God's hand is behind whatever suffering is going on in our lives. God's hand is behind it. And He does so, listen, He does so without approving of the actions of those who cause our suffering. That's hard for you not to get our mind around, right? God's hand allows everything, every bit of suffering to come in our life, but He does so without approving the actions of the others. What's a perfect example of that? Jesus on the cross, right? In Isaiah, it says that it pleased the Father to bruise the Son. When Jesus hung on the cross... That was God's decreed plan for Jesus to suffer that way, and He did so without approving of the actions that put Jesus there. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. It means that you trust God when you're suffering. You're under the mighty hand of God. You trust that God is good and sovereign. He knows what He's doing by allowing suffering to take place in your life. You humbly submit to God's wisdom, His wise providence. The opposite of this is when we... Shake our fists at God when bad things happen, right? You might not do that physically, but you don't on the inside, right? There's a hand on the inside that clenches and you're shaking your hand at God. And Why is this happening to me? I've given everything. I've sacrificed. I've, I've trusted Jesus. Why is this going on? Notice that the one who humbles and trusts in God now has something to look forward to. Look at verse 6 again. Why do you humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God? God's hand of allowing this to happen in your life. Why do you allow? Why do you submit yourselves under that so that at the proper time He may exalt you? Nowhere in this letter has Peter promised the Christian that suffering will end in this life. He's never said at some point in this life you won't have to worry about suffering again. He's never said that. The ex- exaltation He's promising the believer refers to the reward that comes in Eternal life. The believer who humbly trusts in God now has something to look forward to in the future. There is coming a day when they'll never be suffering again. When you suffer, you're living according to the plan of God. That's hard to swallow, right? This is yes. Go ahead and admit it. It is hard to swallow. To, to know that we are suffering, we're going through what we're going through according to the plan of God. And when you humble yourself, you're living in God's will. You're living according to God's plan. And Peter says that's a road to future blessing. It's a hard pill to swallow, right? I've said that three times. 
I have a friend who, uh, and again, I'm getting into dangerous territory here. I know enough to be dangerous. Some of you guys who are farmers will probably correct me afterwards. Um, I have a friend that I went to high school with. Him and his dad did a little farming. They had cows and, you know, he told me there was a particular time when the cow got sick and they had to give it a pill. And he said that pill was huge. And again, I'm just telling you what he told me. And he said they took a tube and run it down that cow's throat as far as they could get in his stomach and they put that pill in that tube and they would blow that pill in there. Now some of you may be going, I, I, I've seen that before. He said on this particular case, and I, I'm illustrating you how hard of a pill it is to swallow when we're going through suffering. He said about the time they got ready to blow, the cow coughed. And you know what happened? <laughs> That pill was so big that it chipped the tooth and it got lodged in the back of his throat. When we suffer, y'all are not going to hear nothing else i got to say. The rest of <laughs> do any of you guys do that? Have you ever done that? You're going, no, but I'm never going to either. So, It's a hard pill to swallow, is it not? Look at verse 7. He says, cast all your anxieties Some of your translations say cares. Cast them on Him because He cares for you. This word anxiety comes from a word meaning to divide. (coughs) Anxieties do what? They divide our mind, right? So that we can't concentrate on anything else. Anxieties distract us from the fruitful things God wants to do. And it consumes us. It causes us to fear, right? So when we have anxieties, it divides our mind and our thoughts. But notice what He tells us to do. He says, cast those things that divide you on Him. Casting has the idea of uh, throwing something on someone else. That's what it means. You just, you just throw it on them. Why should we cast our worries upon God? Why should we take those things and throw them on God? It's because what? Look what He says. It's because He cares for you. God cares about you. He cares about what's going on in your life. He allowed it to come, but He cares for you. In the midst of that. Let me ask you this. What are the things in your life that causes you to worry? Have you, as an act of faith, put those cares, have you cast them on Him because He cares for you? Stop and think about this. What a wonderful miracle of grace that a holy God would invite people like us to cast our cares on Him because He cares for us. Do you believe that God cares for you? Cast those cares on Him. Look at verses 8 and 9. Peter's just told the believer, uh, he's tried to put the believer at ease with the truth that God cares for him, and that God wants the believer to, to give everything to God. And now in verses 8 and 9, he kind of warns the believer, but you still got to take life seriously. Look at verses 8 and 9. Verse 8, Peter says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Be, be sober-minded, be watchful. Here's what Peter's saying. Wake up and be alert. There's a lion on the prowl, and he wants to eat you for his lunch. That's what he is after. You've got to be careful. The devil, your adversary. That word adversary is a legal term and it refers to uh, uh, the appointing of a lawsuit or the opponent in a lawsuit. Most of us have watched enough TV, right? Seen these 
law shows where there's two lawyers in there. What is the other lawyer trying to do to the person that the other guy's representing? He's the opponent, right? He is trying to do everything he can do to take down his opponent. The devil is your opponent. He's your adversary. Notice how the devil's pictured. He's, he's prowling around like a roaring lion. Notice his intent. He's seeking someone to devour. That word devour means to destroy. Not physically, but to destroy your faith in God. He's prowling. He's seeking. And that's in the present tense. It means that he's continually doing that. Which tells us what? We can't take a day off, right? As it relates to being on guard and being alert. The devil wants to destroy the believer by making the believer question the goodness and wisdom of God when he's suffering. Satan tries to devour the believer by destroying his faith. How many of you have ever been in a situation, tough, difficult, and your faith, you began to, you could tell there was a drifting, there was a sliding of way. Notice what he says in verse 9. He says, resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Even though the salvation that you experience as a believer is absolutely secure, that doesn't do away with your responsibility to fight the attacks of Satan upon your faith when you're suffering. You must fight. And it says, listen, this is critical here, you are to resist him. Resist him means you take a stand. And how do you do that? Here's the, here's the thing you've got to understand. You resist Him. You take a stand. Notice what He says. Resist Him. How? Firm in your faith. That word firm means to, to be solid. So you take a stand against the devil. You're, you're firm in your faith. Now here's what that doesn't mean. Are you listening to me? Listen carefully. It does not mean... Well, let me, let me do it this way. Have you ever heard someone say, I rebuke you in the name of the Lord... You better walk away from somebody doing that. Who are you to rebuke the devil? That's God's job. You resist him. He says you do that firm in your faith. The believer resists the devil by doing more of the one thing that Satan wants to destroy. And that's having faith in God. Faith in God that God is in control of this situation. When you're suffering, you're tempted to get angry. You're tempted to to doubt God. You're tempted to envy other people. You're tempted to question the things that you've believed. You're tempted to be irritable and unkind and unloving. You're tempted to be proud and wanting the world to dance around you. Our faith is to be firm, solid, steadfast, unwavering. It's to be like steel. But a lot of times our, our faith is like a marshmallow, right? Anything can dent that. You've seen that. Poke the marshmallow or the Pillsbury Doughboy. That may be what we're more like. And I'm not talking about your physical appearance. I'm talking about, you know, soft inner faith. We're to be like steel. We're to stand firm. And Peter continues to encourage. He says, resist him firm in your faith. And here's why. Knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Guess what? You're not the only person in the world that's having to go through this. Satan tempts the believer by lying to him. He will tell you, you are alone in this. Nobody, nobody cares about you. Somehow, everybody else's life is easy. You ever done that? Everybody's life is easy. I'm the only one that's got trouble. And then he'll follow that up with this. 
Where's your God at? Why doesn't He love you like He loves everybody else? Why isn't He being faithful to you like He's being faithful to everyone else? Does that sound familiar? Aren't you glad our thoughts can't be heard in more ways than one? Peter says, don't you understand the things that you're suffering? They're they're not just you, but everybody has those problems. Notice what he says. The same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. We watched a video Wednesday night about persecuted Muslim Christians in Iraq and how they they were killing them and running them out of their country. And how they would mark their homes with a, a particular Arabic letter. And these people were persecuted for their faith. And in that particular video, the narrator said, These people are your family. Peter's saying here, These things are experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Everybody experiences suffering, some to a higher degree than you. Because you and I live in a fallen world, somehow, some way, suffering is going to come. If you stand for Jesus in a culture that rejects Him, suffering is going to be a part of your life. It will come. God hasn't singled out certain ones for suffering. All of His children will experience suffering. How many of you have ever read the book of Job? Yeah. Job was what? Upstanding. The most faithful man that lived in the region where he was at. You couldn't find a man more faithful, godly than Job. And what happened to Job? Be alert to the devil's plan to destroy your faith. Resist him by remaining firm in your faith. Pursuing more of God. We have a tendency, when things go bad, we have a tendency to what? Fall away from pursuing God, right? It's easy just to curl up in the ball in the corner somewhere and whimper and cry. But Peter says, pursue God in your suffering. Notice in verses 10 and 11, your handout says, trust the Lord. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Believer, notice what it says there. You may suffer now, what does it say, for a little while. During your time here on earth, as Peter said in chapter 1, as aliens and sojourners, it's a little while compared to what? Eternity. After you have suffered for a little while, you're promised a glorious future. Peter reminds the believer of God's the nature of God. He calls God the God of all grace. Notice that. God is the possessor and giver of all grace. Then Peter reminds the believer of God's plan for them, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ. When God called you Christian, when He called you out of darkness into the light, when He called you into salvation, He called you to eventually something really wonderful that's coming in the future. And that's to be a partaker, as Peter said, of the glory that is coming when Christ comes. If you read the Bible carefully, you'll see the pattern. And I think I've told you this. Suffering and then glory comes, right? And who is that true of more than anyone else we see in the Bible? Jesus. Suffered and then glory comes. And that's going to be true of us as well. We're going to suffer here, but glory is coming. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 
Write this verse down for later. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. I have to read these verses quite often. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer, outer shell is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And listen to what he says. For this light, momentary affliction, you're like, really? Compared to eternity, that's what it is. For this light, momentary affliction, listen, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. In other words, you can't sit down and figure out what it's going to be like. It's going to be so glorious. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are not seen. For the things that are seen are transient or temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Romans chapter 8 verse 17 says, And if children, heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him so that we may also be glorified with Him. Did you, did you pick up on that? Glory comes after what? Suffering for Christ. Notice how Peter describes what God will do for the believer when Jesus returns. God will do what? He'll restore, He'll confirm, He'll strengthen, and He'll establish. That word restore means to, to repair or to render complete. God will put you back together after suffering. Confirm means to fix. Strengthen means to, to make sturdy. And the word established means to lay a foundation. The overall idea is that the sovereign God will use suffering to establish you in your faith and to equip you to serve others for His purposes. And because of that, you can trust Him during that time. Verse 11. What is Peter's response to this truth? How does Peter respond to this? Notice what he says. What should be our response? To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. That's a praise that Peter is giving. To the powerful, sovereign God who holds our lives in His hands, who shapes our lives through suffering, to prepare us for glory, belongs eternal dominion. Believer, your Lord and your Savior, Jesus, will not turn from His grace. Suffering will not stop His transforming hand. Circumstances will not get in the way of His work of redemption in your life. Peter says He's going to finish that work. He'll restore. He'll confirm. He'll strengthen. He'll establish. The grace of God is sure and He he won't concede that work of making you like Jesus until the appointed time when Christ comes. And here's what I want you to understand. Because of that, you can get up in the morning even though you're facing tough things And you can rest in your heart and you can live with hope because you know that in that situation, God is doing something. You can sleep at night even though there are things going on in your life that are bigger than you because your hope isn't in your control. It isn't in your power. It isn't in your righteousness. It isn't in your strength. It isn't in your wisdom, but it's in one place. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Verses 12 through 14. We'll look at these verses quickly. There's some things in here that I'm not going to take the time to, to point out, not that I think they're irrelevant, but the main point I'm going to look at, we'll, we'll look at. He says, By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring or testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, Babylon refers to, it's, it's a code word for 
the city of Rome where the church was at. That's how that was used in those days. It's not talking about the physical Babylon. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, the believer, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. He says, greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Peter states two things that he's been doing in this letter. To exhort and to testify about the true grace of God. And notice how he sums it up. He says, stand firm in the grace of God. Stand firm in it. He wants them to keep their faith in Jesus now despite the sufferings that they're going through. Stand firm in that faith. Resist the devil by pursuing God more and more and more in your suffering. Pursue Him. Then verse 14. Again, not that verse 13 is something we shouldn't look at, but for the sake of time, he says, Greet one another with a kiss of love. Some of you guys are going, No. Peace be to you, all who are in Christ. This kiss of love here sounds kind of strange, doesn't it? But this kiss of love between Christians in Peter's time was not something that they looked upon as strange. It actually showed fellowship and a love among believers. And most likely, it took place during times of corporate worship. Don't worry, we, we don't need to break our cultural norms to adopt this literally. Okay? Some of you are getting worried. There wasn't going to be an application point there. But the point is this. We should demonstrate genuine love toward one another. That's the whole point that's being made there. Given all that Peter said about the importance of the church as a refuge from persecution, we see the importance of this closing reminder for church members to express their love for one another. You know, the church ought to be the safest place for us to run to, right? The people of God. We should run to our fellow brothers and sisters when we're hurting and them come alongside us and lift us up and point us to help us stand firm in our faith. Then finally, he closes with a, a wish for them to experience God's peace. That's a fitting closing for people who are in the midst of suffering, right? Peace be to all of you who are where? In Jesus. In this life, we have God's peace. We have His comfort. We have His promises while we're suffering. In the life to come is when glory comes. If you're looking at your handout, I gave you some points of application there. Let's look at those quickly to help us apply this. This is for you to have for later on. Number one says, God's sovereignty over suffering. No suffering happens to you without the permission of God. And He's using it for His good purposes in your life, one of which is to refine and purify your faith. This is absolutely revolutionary or radical to the way we think about the bad things that happen to us. Number two, when you suffer, think on the gospel and rejoice. In fact, think on the gospel and rejoice all the time. Number three, A refuge God has given us from a hostile world is the church. So we're to love one another fervently from the heart and use our gifts in serving and ministering to one another. Love your church family. And that requires more than just words coming out of your mouth. Did you hear that? Number four, expect to suffer at some time and to some degree for being a Christian. When suffering comes, don't wish to switch places with an unbeliever. 
a much worse thing is coming His way. Instead, fix your hope on the future grace and praise God instead. So let's pray. God, we thank You 